You're tuned in to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. I'm Jason P. Woodbury, and it's good to have you here. My guests this week are Joe Para and James Wallace, who's better known as Skyway Man. The two work together on season two of Joe's TV show, Joe Para Talks With You on Adult Swim. Describing what happens on the show doesn't really do it justice. Nothing too out of the ordinary occurs. Characters go on hikes, they stay up late watching videos on the internet, they deal with the passing of loved ones. But it's how the show unfolds, gently, unhurriedly, that makes it such remarkable viewing. It's a very funny show, and it takes its time offering up space and comfort to the viewer, while also skewering its characters lovingly. On The World Only Ends When You Die, Skyway Man also puts his characters through the ringer. It's a psych folk opera of spaced out country and sci-fi gospel and blues, laced with mythology and nods to George Van Tassel, legendary ufologist. It's due out this week on Mama Bird Recording Co. And while it certainly grapples with some heavy existential issues, it's also a lot of fun to listen to. I got the two collaborators together on the phone to discuss their work together, mortality and the paranormal. If you enjoy our show, please spread the word. Leave a rating or a review. Tell your friends. And if you want to take your support a step further, check out Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon. All right, without further delay, here's my conversation with Joe Para and Skyway Man. We'll speak more on the other side. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. All right. Well, Joe, James, it's great to have you guys here on Aquarium Drunkard's Transmissions. Thank you so much for joining me. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Well, congrats on your your new projects. Uh, the new Skyway Man album is really incredible. And Joe, I read that your forthcoming book, a bathroom book for people not pooping or peeing, but using the bathroom as an escape, is currently the number one pre-order on Amazon in the love, sex, and marriage parentheses humor close parentheses department. So, I think you. I think that's a. Fit, that's pretty. That's you've made it. I'm. I'm excited. I don't know. I. I yeah. I don't, yeah. It's very. Very excited for people to read the book. But uh, more about James's album. It's coming out. It's in the process of coming out. Right. Um, yeah, it's a, it's about 70% released and it's going to be out on October 23rd in its entirety. James, you, uh, I mean, a lot of people will sort of release like a single, you know, once a week or, you know, every, every couple weeks, but, uh, this, your rollout for this has been a lot more involved in that. Uh, when did that idea, the sort of pairing of the songs uh if are are they in the the order of the release have they been released in order of the track list i mean yep yep pretty straightforward 
one song at a time or a few songs in a cluster yeah when it's um yeah when did that idea i mean you know obviously it's sometimes difficult for people to come up with like a you know a lot of the stuff that would normally be associated with an album release, you know, like live performances and things like that, obviously can't happen. Uh, you know, was the rollout of this something that you started conceiving of, you know, in response to the pandemic, or was it something you'd been thinking about before? Um, I think it was something that I had naively expected would happen, uh, like the, the deep dive into the virtual realm of releasing it slowly but that like fathoming that idea like pre-pandemic is is sort of absurd because there's there really wouldn't have been any time to prepare everything that way and um so in the back of my mind i was thinking this this would be so cool if it came out as a story one chapter at a time and uh i had just started working with mama bird and we were kind of getting to know each other and figuring out what a realistic release looked like as kind of the everything was crumbling around us and i remember there was a couple of phone calls where you know we were we scheduled a phone call and i had i had it in the back of my mind the possibility of them saying sorry james records aren't coming out anymore or you know this isn't this is just kind of on this is tabled which is a theme i feel like in the process of like the slow process i usually follow to make these records it's just a slow slow process but instead they were um you know they were sad to you know we we all kind of realized we should postpone and postpone as as like reasonably possible but as soon as we set like a far date, I think we felt relieved a little bit when, um, you know, the only true show date we had on the books around the release, which was sort of getting timed, was the Pickathon Festival, which we were, you know, super excited about. But when that, when they canceled that, it it was just clear that all bets were off and we should just slow everything down and imagine things on a wide scale. That's kind of how it kept. Yeah, came together. It's it's a concept album, you know, but was the concept as outlined uh, you know, in your mind when you started this process of of creating the art that it, you know, like there's these incredible drawings by uh Kevin is it Kevin Hoyman? Hoyman? How how's how's Kevin's last name pronounced? I'm pretty sure it's Hoyman. I really like the idea of it being pronounced Hoyman. I don't think I've ever said, "Hey, Kevin Hoyman." So I don't know for sure. Kevin, I hope that's okay. And uh, yeah, but um, the concept, I guess, came also somewhat gradually. Working with him kind of committed me to um, thinking more about the story and unpacking it. Also, Vincent from Mama Bird really sort of encouraged me to, you know, I would I would sort of hint at it in discussions and talk about how I felt like there was this, um, you know, chapter-based narrative. And, uh, you know, I think it was when I, when I came to the realization I was going to work closely with Kevin on the art and that I was going to be releasing this slowly with Vincent and the team, um, I really kind of sat down and unpacked it which is like a concept 
yeah, it's definitely a concept. And also to to unpack something like that feels again it kind of goes against I think oftentimes what a better artistic nature would assume, which is to sort of keep all of your cards close to the chest and just have an album be an album and if people want to take it that way or not, it's up to them. And uh I don't know. I just kind of had a really good time thinking about it as if it were a class project and um and it kind of extracted itself that way sort of and yeah um i'm 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 now now i can't really look at it any other way i guess right right were you were you and kevin discussing this stuff pretty uh what was the discussion process like would you tell him like did, would you provide him sort of rough script kind of ideas? I mean, obviously, you know, the, the lettering and stuff, but I'm talking about the visual content of stuff. Did you sort of have a hand in directing that? No. Um, the the dude's kind of like a long-lost mystical older brother, I'd say. He came... I I was given one of his comics by a friend on a whim, and it sat on my shelf for like a couple of weeks and then one night I was stoned and I just jumped in and started reading it and if anybody you know out there has read one of his longer form comics it really just I don't I can speak for myself it just kind of jumped right into my soul and there was one section where he he had a page full he does a lot of studies I would say where he'll like there'll just be a kind of a non sequitur page full of um clouds or types of computer connectors, or in this case, it was band names. And he had a whole page full of a little square with the name with a name of a fictional band, and then just a, a little sense of what that band looked like. Hmm. And I thought it was so brilliant. And one in particular was a band he called the Desperation Play. And <laughs> it stuck with me. <laughs> Um, probably for like, you know, literal and metaphorical reasons, but I, I kind of got, I don't know, within a week I was like delivering flowers for Valentine's day. It's a gig I did in Nashville every year. And (laughs) I kind of just, I kind of had this like romantic idea for a song about a, a dude whose favorite band is the desperation play. Hmm. And he just kind of gets like shut down by a girl he really likes. And um, and so that turned into a song, which is on the record called Night Walking Alone. And as the as like the time was beginning, I mean, late, late into the game, I think I already knew I was releasing this record and I hadn't really thought too much about the art direction. I uh, I, I emailed Kevin. I I probably use the contact form on his website and I got nowhere, but then somebody I knew who knew him gave me his actual email and I just told him about the song and the band and I sent him the song and he responded as like, dude, this is a cool song. This is, this is neato. Thanks, man. And I, uh, I think I wrote in there somewhere like, Hey, you know, maybe we could collaborate. And he said, yeah, let's do it. And, um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, He's he's not the easiest guy to get a hold of, and I, I say that in my mind to his credit, personally. I like somewhat how mystical and 
elusive he can be. Uh, and he does things very much on his own terms. But um, yeah, I, I somehow the conversation shifted and I said, what if you, you know, made some artwork for the for the album? And that's when I kind of burrowed and, and thought, well, if, if he's going to make artwork for the, the record and he's a comic artist, I don't want to like force his hand to do a giant like multifaceted storyline kind of like concept but wouldn't it be cool if I at least sent him a a like five page essay about what the record's about so I sort of burrowed in and wrote a lot of stuff and there's many things that you know there's there's this um this thing that's coming along concurrently with each song called the illuminated manuscripts and those are um like kind of a a libretto for each tune but there's also these outside writings that I've made about the album which I haven't shared yet and I'm I'm I may at some point I I probably hold those a little closer but but I shared just like a lot of stuff with him along with the album and it ended up working out perfectly I think for his process cuz he just dove in and um, he disappeared for sure about three weeks and I thought I was I thought oh man yeah I don't know if this is gonna work I mean I've worked with a lot of wonderful artists in the past and have and understand the um that like balance that delicate balance between the 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 more brilliant artists who can understand your vision also sometimes being unreachable um either by cell phone or by like this the winds of the of the spirit moon waves so it's just it's just i i i have a lot of patience in that regard but i was beginning to wonder if this was going to happen and then one day he sent me an email with about 30 sketches and and every single page was full of ideas uh like little vignettes of moments on the album that you know, were inspired by the, the like the writings about each song, but also just directly in relation to the lyrics themselves. I guess he had Googled images of me and he kind of really nailed this um this kind of like weathered, bearded, like future version of me, I think. And I I mean I, I was just I was beside myself and that was when I knew. <laughs> um we were we were meant to work together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's incredible, Joe. You've worked with an artist a lot on on your your TV show. Mary Houlihan did mm-hmm. the like the title cards, and she's done she's done a fair amount of art. And some of your earlier stuff is also for Adult Swim was also animated. Uh, what's yeah. what's your what's your experience been? working with with artists like that do you usually come to them with a pretty uh set and sort of like concrete idea of what you want the art to accomplish or do you do you try to figure out some sort of way to maybe be a little bit more improvisatory and allow them to to kind of do do their own thing to some degree mary's uh excellent painter she paints uh kind of uh i don't know i say they're they're somewhat realistic hand-painted images and uh first season we we kind of i think we we said here's what we're trying to do to her and like here's the theme of the episode and it's basically she'll do the title a main image and then four little corner pieces for the title card of each episode and um we kind of go you know 
toss ideas around. And I think first season we kind of left it up to chance and hope to catch some inspiration. And then we realized that TV deadlines are kind of not great for um, having time to figure stuff out or letting your imagination take you. You know, we've got like sometimes a week to edit an episode. James knows because he's done the music in quite a hurry and it's kind of like sometimes you just got to get it done so the second season we kind of had sessions where i'd sit down and figure out exactly what the images should be and like uh, mary would kind of match that i feel bad asking for something so specific because like she if she had time she could come up with something probably better and paint it better but uh I don't know. Sometimes just have to say like, uh, I don't know. We needed a hockey puck and she'll paint a hockey puck beautifully and it'll work great. But there's just not like a ton of time for complete exploration of ideas in a way that I wish that we had time to give her. Sure. Sure. Do either of you have physical pieces that, uh, you know, uh, either something from Kevin or Mary, like physical art that has been created for your projects that you've, you hang on to or, do they have that stuff? Uh, I've gotten nothing yet. I've never met Kevin. Um, I've <laughs> everything. Um, yeah. Even from the beginning of our conversations was kind of just before stuff was starting to turn. So yeah, I'm, I hope, I mean, my dream is to go and find him in New York and have a beer and, you know, like look over like and touch some of these like sketches he scanned and sent to me. But no, I've never, <laughs> never seen one in person yeah mary gives last season the first season and before she would give us the 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 image the, the the hand-painted things that she painted and scanned and they're beautiful i love to and knowing that i have a couple i put all like the uh, images of christmas trees i made uh i've got framed and i have and i appreciate it but i think last season we didn't ask, and I think she sold uh, a lot of the original paintings online. And uh, I'm glad that she could make a little extra money on the side yeah. from doing that. Yeah. So I think, like, I mean, they're only like a, a few inches by a few inches because they're uh, painted and then scanned. But after that, uh, I don't know. They're fun. They're they're fun to own, and I'm glad that other people get to have them too. You already alluded to it, but but you guys worked together on the last season of of the show. Uh, James, were you already working on this album while you were working on season two of the TV show, or uh, what was sort of the 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 timeline? I had probably just finished the album. Uh, well, there's always little there's always little things to like button up, but for the most part, the album had been done. Uh, right around when when this started which was good because I, I i needed to put my full attention on on the tv show not have any other projects at the time how did you guys meet joe what what made you reach out to to james uh i was uh so somebody posted on instagram james's album is uh uh billy wayne davis is a comedian and 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 I think he's he's from Nashville too, right, James? 
Yeah, he is from Nashville. We've never met, but I know, I definitely know of him. No, I mailed him a hat once. (laughs) Yeah, so he he just posted on Instagram, check out this album. And I was in the middle, I was taking a research trip to Michigan the first season. And I was, you know, driving, I think it was uh, late winter. And I just put on James's uh, album and was completely blown away. And I don't know, I guess even from the first season, though, we didn't work on that together. I just had a lot of um, associated, a lot of the stuff that I saw in Michigan and in the museums and the town. And I was just listening to his album the entire time. And it kind of, uh, it, it kind of in my head and while I was writing, I was thinking about it. And I guess tonally, it just it was perfect. So then when James played the show in Brooklyn, uh, I think in between the two seasons, I, I went and said hello. James, were you already familiar with the show or did you, did you need to sit down and watch the first season? I, I think I watched the first episode that night when I got back to my aunt's apartment on the, in the Upper East Side. Um, and, um, oh, sorry. She lives on the Upper West Side. She would kill me if she listened to this and heard me say that. Um, <laughs> she's been holding it down there since like 79. Yeah. We, um, we try to have yeah. a no upsetting aunt's policy on this podcast. So I appreciate the correction. Yeah. Totally. And my aunt is by and large, my biggest fan, perhaps next to my mom. <laughs> That's great. Um, uh, yeah, no, I, I sensed, I sensed it, but I, I had not heard of it, uh, and that's by and large due to just I, I've, I've been kind of, you know, in a, a TV void for, you know, a lot of the last few years. Um, and I'm turning around. Um, obviously, <laughs> the pandemic helped, but yeah, um, I think we've all watched a lot more TV in 2020 than maybe we for sure. <laughs> normally would have what did you think of what did you think of that first episode Mm. it uh i mean it 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 felt um (laughs) what's that line in um (laughs) this is kind of silly there's that movie the kids in the hall movie brain candy uh Mm -hmm. when the woman takes the the happy pill for the first time and (laughs) and they're trying to ask her how it makes her feel and she just stares off into space and says, it feels like God is rubbing my tummy. (laughs) Um, And I guess, I mean, you know, to a degree, it really did send me right off into a lovely sleep that night. So I would, I would probably put it in that category. Yeah. Joe, we actually have, we've spoke once before and we talked about how you don't mind if people fall asleep to your, to your show. Um, Did, (laughs) Going into the the season two and working with James, you know what kind of what kind of conversations did you guys have about the tone of of the the music? Because it is like it is very gentle and lulling, and and I I could see myself falling asleep to the the soundtrack stuff from season two. Maybe not the new album so much. I'm mean, not that it's not lovely, but it's a little bit more, uh, you know. Uh, it's more awake, I guess. But uh, what kind of what kind of discussions did you guys have about what you wanted the music to accomplish in season two? Um, I think I mean the, the main part of the music is and the whole show is we try and keep everything 
fairly simple and uh i i don't know it's hard to it kind of sucks because uh sometimes it's just what feels right and that's it's hard i, I guess we taught I, I guess uh sorry i'm not thinking that clearly at this time of night uh but it was uh i think we try and keep every, everything simple there are a lot of like real simple melodies kind of uh we like almost old church hymns that we use as reference like uh i remember james's uh melody for the sugar loaf and in episode two it was just so uh straightforward that it was almost i don't know how i don't know if you'd say it the same but it was almost like too simple first I felt almost insulting asking James to like make something that simple with so few notes, but it just worked and kind of amplified the humor. Um, but I, I guess there is kind of like a, almost like a hymn element to it where it's very simple. And uh, I don't know, James uses a lot of uh, church music in his uh his work too though so that was kind of fun to find out yeah there's a lot of a lot of gospel references on the new record and um yeah i definitely i I hear what you're talking about was that what what kind of you know um james i'm gonna say i might sound a little bit goofy here but the gospel that you reference on you know your your stuff is maybe a slightly different style than maybe what you would reference in the Joe Paris stuff. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah. In a, in a way, I mean, there's still a, um, there's a, there's a distillation that, that is happening on like a constant distillation that I think is, is like part of the power of the, of all gospel music, um, when it really hits and, um, I I can definitely, I I definitely found myself praying to the God of simplicity, working on this stuff. Yeah, and I don't I, I remember most of my feedback. Most of the feedback I felt was it always, I mean you know it was always delivered really politely and um, started with this is great, and then usually you know can you make it softer? Can you, (laughs) can you put fewer notes? Uh, Can you remove the trill? Yeah. Can you make it less comedic? (laughs) And, and those were like, fortunately, um, uh, they were really, they're all, they're like, it felt like the words of a mentor in a lot of ways, like a, like a, kind of a spirit guide uh that can help me i i mean i i enjoyed it and it was also good too joe i, I don't know i we might have talked about this some at the at the rap party um but ryan really ryan dan the other composer on the show who you know if if you're not familiar with his work is really really great and um if it wasn't for him i i don't know if i i don't know if i could have pulled it off or or felt as comfortable doing it because he sort of really was always there for me to call and and say you know hey you know if 
if Joe says he wants it softer, <laughs> or if Joe says he wants it less comedic, maybe uh, just try <laughs> try this or this. And you know, it it wasn't that like it it's it's not that I think he needed to translate Joe's vision, but if if nothing else, he was like, you don't have to worry if you don't totally get it. You just keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> it's very it's very um you know like the whole try not try Taoist approach and I, I mean there's a lot of space on this this TV show to approach that in yourself and I appreciated it yeah I mean I, I don't think I told you I was very uncomfortable giving notes a lot of the time because um I don't know there were there are pieces in the show that sometimes it's like just it's so it felt underneath like uh, James, a musician like James would be like, we just need something very simple here. And it has to do this exact thing and to just kind of ask for something so specific and simple, but it, you know, it needed to be very particular to get the comedy, right? I hated asking for that. Like, I think, but it, my favorite was when you did the drive to Milwaukee and the jazz on the radio. And it was just like, I, I could ask for something that's understated, something for the radio. And then James could go and come back with uh, whatever he was inspired by at the time. And, you know, do his own searching and try and find a piece. I, I loved when it was open-ended like that. I felt... Uh, but then there are some like tight corners, like just like this. I think the second episode, uh, it's like just we need a very simple chord progressions, and um, it needs to kind of the main thing is that it's at a walking pace and amplifies this walking humor and matches the speed of uh, of the way that I'm talking, and like. I felt very uncomfortable, James, because I know everything that you do musically. I just felt like to ask you to do stuff like that, I felt bad. Well, it it turned out really well because it's, I mean, it's it's a really unique tone, right? And I mean, uh, it's a really specific tone that I think is, the music accentuates that sort of, um, I'm trying to, it's, it's been hard to put, you know, uh, people bring up things like Mr. Rogers or, or, you know, fishing with John maybe, you know, but there is this sort of like quiet intensity in a weird way where, uh, the the fact that not, okay. Yeah. Okay. So James talk a little bit about, about that. Cause I think that that is really one of the keys to what makes the show tick, right? Is that when you're watching a screen where things are happening very slowly, uh, it's so different than what we're used to almost all the time. You know what I mean? Like we're constantly moving at a much, much higher speed just in pretty much every everything I can think of, you know? So it really does feel to me like, you know, a very specific mood, you know, and I imagine that that must have been fun to work in, James. Once you started to kind of get the the feel, yeah. I, I mean, I definitely had to get the feel. It took it took a bit. 
of um it 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 started i definitely started probably attempting things as you said much faster and trying to get to trying to maximize whatever emotional um you, you know assuming that my role as creating music would be to just like turn up the knob on the situation of the of the scene and i i learned early on i think it was the um um the running the bases scene in the second episode mm-hmm. where my first inclination when i saw it was um and you know i now i can't think of the song but i went i went from a referential point of of wanting to have that that sort of that understated victorious like moment in the romantic comedy where things really begin to come together and and i mean of course that's the first place i wanted to write something with and and it felt so fun to me granted i mean i who all for all i know i might have like gone into the shed that day and watched the scene and may have been a little stoned and wanted to just like get <laughs> real into it uh and and I, I think it was a great lesson in learning how the there's like an undercurrent of power that you can contain in in comedy and even in just um in there's a there's a sense of genuineness that can be maintained if you don't shoot past the mark and and go for just like maximizing either a comedic sense that maybe relates to something kind of like mixing with irony or uh just a, a feeling of just like maximizing the tone it's not always the move and by by kind of finding just a way to get get a feeling across that seems in accordance with this like there at no point should the music feel like it's um becoming a parody or it it, it makes the sense of the scene a parody and music can definitely do that and I found um, a new path in creation while working on this show where I knew that I had to kind of find the way to understate it and get in line with the tone. And that was fun. It was, it was the baseball scene is almost like the inverse of the opening. Something was so kind of ridiculous was happening that it almost, you had to kind of, uh, you know, kind of uh, do a little bit less and just have the the organ tones play but then cuz like and then it was like the inverse at the beginning when we were just showing that uh just a cone of sugar into a shot of me walking towards the camera and uh that's it. James's melody was very uh it was very um rhythmic to match the walking but also very kind of sweet in a way it was just a nice, uh, simple melody. Bum, 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 bum. I'm sorry, I shouldn't start singing. But it was like a very <laughs> sweet song so that when I came on screen and said something real stupid, it kind of, or it wasn't, it wasn't stupid, but I, I forget. It was just something about like walking or hiking. And when I said the kind of silly line that this is the sweetness of James's intro, played against that and it was like the music set the tone for such a silly thing to be said and it was kind of the inverse with the baseball scene and that 
they're kind of balancing each other out right in a way that that kind of balance is really important to well i think actually to both of these projects something that i thought about a lot listening to the new record is the way you know uh i think i think don't feel bad about being alive is maybe my favorite track right now um and I don't know. Uh, yeah. I'm glad because that, that song took the most physical effort to create. So whenever <laughs> that happens, when that when that correlates to somebody's favorite, it's nice. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I, well, I was thinking I was thinking about the album and I was thinking about the show. And and I think that something that they share is a is a way in which there is a kind of optimism to both of these things, or there is a kind of sweetness or a kind of uh, you know there's a kindness that you can hear on both of these projects. But I think what you mentioned earlier about not sort of uh, missing the mark, going a little too far, amping things up a little bit, that's not what either of these things do. There's a lot of sort of restraint. Uh, And I think that one of the reasons why it's so hard to get optimism into art is because it, it just feels phony so often, you know? So I wondered if you guys could talk a little bit about how you manage to get a sense of, you know, peacefulness or optimism or, you know, uh, that kind of kind quality into what you're doing without just being sugary or, you know, saccharine or, or, or kind of like too much to the point where it feels kind of kind of fake. Um, it's hard. I guess I'll just start by saying that, like, one of the reasons that I thought James would be perfect to compose was the uh, 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 "Seen by a Mighty Eye." Just the way that the, the album or the the song "Wire" starts, and I I just had such an easy time imagining the the opening of the second season to uh that song just by the first few chords they were so simple and they but they did kind of like you mentioned had that quiet intensity and i it was there's so much in those few chords that i thought that that was what aligned it with the show so much and i don't know it was very i don't know they're very hopeful in a way even if uh I'm not answering your question that well, but I'm just kind of trying to connect that. The, um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that. It was just there's something in those chords that I think is in the show. It's kind of a, a little bit of a, a, a yearning almost, and beginning of a story. And I think that that's, I don't know. I thought that those chords kind of captured. Uh, a lot of the things that I wanted to put into the show alone, not to mention the rest of the song and and everything else, but I just thought they, they spoke they spoke a lot about uh, a lot of uh, a lot of stuff was contained in just those those chords, and then where the rest of the song went, and um, I don't know, and yeah, and it was just they're not. It was very, very straightforward at the same time. I, uh, I guess that's why that that song and album really spoke to me. 
Mm. Thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, sir. Oh, also no, the way it grows and um. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, no yeah. worries. James, do you, you know, when it comes to that, that idea of optimism, you know, this record, obviously it, it's telling this story of sort of a, I don't know, like a journey into the underworld and all this stuff. Um, but there's this sense in which that is presented l- less, you know, there are, there are certainly the sort of more, uh, the, the, the darker side of things, but there's a lot of balance on this record and there's a lot of sort of balance towards overall kind of managing to find some sort of feeling of peace, I think. So, you know, is that, you know, where, where, what was your sort of, with this album, were you thinking in terms of trying to capture something about your own journey, you know, and, and maybe try to get some of whatever kind of peace or comfort you have found, you know, into this record specifically? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a, some of, yeah, some of making this, this music and assembling it in the way that I did is, is for a way to sort of find my own understanding in things. Cause I, I don't always understand the individual pieces of the music and where things are going. And then when it all finally comes together, I take an extra sigh of relief feeling that I've, you know, I'm. I get what it is that I am trying to say and and that is good for my mental health and um yeah but on a but as soon as I zoom into anything it's really hard I, thinking about things I feel it's you could generally say that if, if the message I'm stating lyrically is positive then the music is maybe leaning dark and then if the music is darker the the or if the music is sounding positive, then my message might sound a little darker or lost, more like hopeless, I guess. The kind of um, the kind of Beach Boys juxtaposition kind of feel. I guess so. Or, it's only and, and that may just be from a way that I can personally um, justify how much or too much of an emotion I want to like that I'm feeling or that I feel needs to be at odds with itself because there's that. What I what really gets me interested in things is when I when I can find tension that I that I didn't know was there in listening to something like listen to something that's at first seems innocuous and then I discover something about the music and it and suddenly I find all this tension within it and that's super exciting to me it feels like you found like a new color or something <laughs> and um and I try to kind of you know I'm always probably trying to do that um with whatever. I I decide decide is complete. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I need to write generally optimistic music for myself, and I it's somehow along the way I found writing. It's not really about a post-apocalyptic world so much as just a a a. It's like a mixed truth message from the future is yeah. kind of what I'm always trying to send back <laughs> kind of like a, like a, like a broadcast that isn't necessarily, it's kind of an, 
it's sort of an allegory um but it but it is worth considering i mean you know trying to like get that type of attention trying to force someone to pay attention to a message from the future that is also possibly untrue is like right a lot of what i think gets me ex- gets me interested in in writing new songs um yeah the the sort of the sort of uh science fictional or mystical you know elements that that shade this album and certainly shade the art um you know does 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 employing that sort of thematic lens uh where you can sort of make something fantastical uh you know does that allow you in terms of your writing to explore things that maybe I mean, the the beautiful thing about science fiction, right, is that it's all about you know what if or as if, and and uh, I wonder if having that as a sort of setup to where you can create whatever conditions you need for the the scene, you know, allows you um, easier access to what you're trying to write about. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I like the I like starting. It's easier for me to, you know, walk out into the world and take take the space I need to like work on a song and finish it if I'm thinking of it in the realm of fantasy a little bit. Just I don't know if that's just because it separates me from my like getting too close to myself and my own neuroses. But when I found that, I mean, I have I have had a few experiences in life that sort of shifted me towards wanting to write more about that stuff um just uh you know i i had a uh i had this experience like a a little over a decade ago where i found a box of letters that were really you know super far out and led me on like kind of a weird mission to find the people who were writing to each other where did you where did you find those letters they were in it was in boone north carolina like around the corner from my old apartment when I was going to school at Appalachian State, uh, it's like a abandoned motorcycle shop, and my friend and I broke into it, and we're just kind of hmm. um, just like cruising around. And I found this is a this is a I'll just caveat this is not necessarily a story for this time. Sure, um, if I'm down hmm. to do it anytime you want to, but it is it's a big it's a big boy. That's um, that's fine. That's uh, fine. We can come. And, we, yeah, and, we'll do a follow up. Yeah, I mean it, it. It it definitely um as an as an eternal like as somebody who's always been a f- fascinated by space stars and you know, um it's also, you know, loves science fiction cursorily and and wants to wants to believe, but as an eternal skeptic, like as takes really, I take a lot of, um, I, I'm a hopeless skeptic, I guess, in a lot of ways, but I, but I also can't turn away from anything. And hmm. in that regard, um, I, uh, I really let, I really let the, um, th- this, this sort of path take me by, you know, like grab me by the collar and I sort of let it lead me. And that, opened me up in a lot of ways to writing about anything it gave it felt like it gave me permission to to you know write about the like like more either absurd or uncanny circumstances or like Hmm. commit to the concept of a character as skyway man speaking 
in some sort of context, you know, you know, it, it just sort of helps lead me along. And, um, and yeah, you know, just like a tiny subtext of, of channeled aliens as well. Always there. (laughs) Well, yeah. So you, you cite ufologist George Van Tassel on the right. I mean, there's a sample and, uh, you make reference to him on scene coming from a mighty eye as well. I think, right. The giant rock. Um, yeah, I actually make reference to him on every album, and the, <laughs> and and it's it's by accident on the first my before I released the Skyway Man record, I I put out a vinyl record as James Wallace and the Naked Light, which was a just kind of just a sort of different version of Skyway Man, and um, I accidentally put or like unwittingly put a, a picture of Giant Rock on the cover of the record just because I really. <laughs> liked it and um it's a drawn picture and then um a few years several years later i was in joshua tree and um just looking up stuff to do and i i came across somebody mentioning landers and giant rock and i happened to be with the right group of pals and we just put down our burritos and went straight to it because we found it and um you know, subsequently checked out the Integratron and <laughs> it, it all felt like a weird dream because I, I was looking at this thing that I had put on my album and they were talking about a lot of the ideas that George Van Tassel talked about and his brand of ufology is really similar <laughs> to the writings that were found in the letters that I discovered in that motorcycle shop. So it's just a lot of shit that kind of came together in that moment and um i've always i'm not an expert on george van tassel i've i've read a handful of uh of writings about him and i know that i just before earlier today i discovered there's a podcast called the giant rock podcast <laughs> so i'm probably going to go down that rabbit hole and um get a little more familiar but i've listened to some of his i mean i i listened to a lot of um of his probably several hours of his orations coming up with some sound bites that I really thought felt poignant to the record. and Yeah, that's my favorite yeah. way to engage with the stuff is to hear him talk. That's when it sort of feels the most uh, comprehensible for me, oh, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, and you're in, you're in UFO land yourself. Where, where in Arizona are you? I'm in, I'm in Phoenix. I'm in Phoenix. But oh, Phoenix. It, it, it only, yeah, I mean, obviously we're, we're home of one of the, uh, maybe the, Maybe the whitest reported UFO sighting ever, you know, the Phoenix Lights, yeah. ninety-seven. But uh, Joe, do you go down that rabbit hole? Do you are you a are you a UFO guy? UFO, um, no, not too much. <laughs> be honest. I was thinking no, like no. you're, you're going to pull a Fargo, that. and there's going to be a UFO in season three of Joe, you know, Joe Para or whatever. No, the reason, yeah, well, I mean. The real reason James and I work together is because we both seen uh, lights, uh, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I've been reading a lot of science fiction too. I was gonna say, and lately especially because it's just it's nice to imagine us uh, surviving into the future. Yeah, and reading about that. Uh, oh, wow, we make it past this point, and that's that's good. That's good enough to. It's I don't know. That's why I've, I've enjoyed it lately a lot. I'm thinking yeah. about the future and stuff. It is hopeful. I guess it's all science fiction a little bit hopeful that we make it 
uh, past the current day. Yeah. Yeah, that's true in a weird way. Like, uh, you know, any future is, uh, you know, maybe better than no future. So, I mean, yeah, even, even the dystopian stuff, it's still a reminder that people will be alive, you know, and doing hopefully <laughs> things of note. Yeah. Yeah, if, uh, I don't know, Earth gets blown up in uh, the year 2,500, at least that's not 2,025. Right, right. James, James, when it comes to stuff like, you know, obviously, you you referenced yourself as sort of a skeptic. Um, Does stuff like, you know, like... there are obviously people who don't think that George Van Tassel, you know, uh, they don't they don't view him necessarily as like a, as an outsider sort of artist or you know creative thinker. A lot of people think like this was a guy who who really got you know direct messages from from aliens. So, does sort of the general UFO culture uh, to you, you know, does a lot of that come from? Uh, do you sort of view it almost? in the same lens as you do view a lot of like science fiction stuff or, you know, it, it's funny cause science fiction and religion are these two sort of things that sort of factor in on your record. And I think that they, they do start to blur back and forth every now and then, especially in something like the field of ufology. Um, yeah, well the, I mean the most captivating part of all of it to me is the aesthetics and that, um, is not um, removed from how I think that you know every every fantastical imaginable UFO story or you know a- alien abduction story channeling being story it all ties into some you know a lot of that canon especially the you know the images we know of in relation to like the paradigm of aliens and ufos they're you know they're very much 20th and 21st century and i think it it has a lot to do with just the lost american colonist seeking spiritualism that gets that got really heavy but like that's kind of the there's there's just a lot of that um i think like packed into you ufo ufology and stuff like that and also but but i don't know if it's totally I know that the the first image of the UFO and the collective consciousness of the UFO happens a lot. And (laughs) there may be something to that. There may be some explanation that's stranger than anything even a skeptic could come up with. Sure. Um, Sure. And, uh, and I love, I love that it exists. It's one of my, it's one of my more um, favorite aspects of American culture. I love that it's, um, and I know it's world culture as well. It's just that, um, I, I like the way that it, that it manifests, um, as like a, as a, as a fiction, as a ideology, maybe also because it's mostly benign. It's not always the case. I mean, there's plenty of death cults and Hmm. I, I mean, you know, anytime there's like a dude with too much power, he has to figure out how to like wrap things up for his cult. But, and that's like, it's a whole nother thing and usually it has to do with aliens somehow and it's dark but um yeah i don't <laughs> i don't know i guess that kind of sums it up 
No, so, so yeah, I mean, absolutely. So anti-death cult, but kind of generally pro-UFOs makes, I mean, I, I think it's a fair, <laughs> pro-UFO culture at least. Um, <laughs> you know, something that, that struck me uh, that's really a big theme about both uh, these projects also is the, the aspect of mortality and sort of uh, observing mortality. So uh, I guess what I'm saying is I'd like to talk a little bit about death. Um, and I think that in 2020, there is every reason in the world for us to have really frank and honest and open conversations about death. And yet it still seems to elude uh, most people, you know, I don't think we know how to conceive of the kind of death that we've seen in 2020 on, you know, I don't think we know how to really kind of contextualize it, but, um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about mortality and, and, uh, James, th this record obviously deals with that. And, uh, Joe, your show takes a, a, mm -hmm. a kind of a, a, an unexpected for an unexpected turn in 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 a, a way with the second season where you know one minute it is a like a really funny setup about the movie rat race and then the next minute it's it's a really <laughs> a affecting and moving um moment you know uh where your character faces a, a really uh momentous loss so i wanted to talk a little bit about how you know maybe we could start with with you joe that that's a that's kind of a bold move. What kind of what kind of conversations did you have with the other writers about how you were going to thread that sort of needle in terms of shifting the show into unexpected territory? Uh, well, I guess uh, everybody or almost everybody in the writers' room had lost somebody. I lost my grandmother at the beginning of uh, season one as we were finishing the writing process and i just didn't really have uh i was so overwhelmed by everything we had to do i i didn't really have time to process it or i didn't and uh but also another writer lost his mother uh, another writer lost her father um one other one lost their friend during the season one and i just thought that it would be a a worthwhile thing to dig into and um i guess the yeah and it just kind of started from there and uh i know we started the episode the episode in which she passes she started starts from we're doing like a fake rat race i don't want to give hey no that's okay I, it's been out for a while but yeah we're doing like a, a fake rat race after the character sees uh the movie rat race and um then the his grandmother dies i guess i don't know it kind of you just uh i'm trying to i think mean i to think the, that it's, it was you you know what you accomplished with it was this really um tender and human thing so i mean it worked totally um i guess it's just what i don't know when it's, when people die suddenly, you get caught in, I don't know, some, there are plenty of kind of ridiculous deaths and also deaths that happen suddenly. There are things that happen that make you wonder why you, everything else seems so frivolous and silly that you were 
going about doing before that, I guess it's just kind of exaggerated it. And, you know, and it, I think it's, mm, I don't maybe with the comment, but the idea that he was doing a rat race seemed like it almost increased the amount of guilt in my head. I guess maybe sometimes like, I don't know, maybe it's linked in the fact that I, I felt ridiculous making a comedy show or continuing making a comedy show after my grandmother's death and during, uh, you know, everything else that's going on right now. I think it might be a reflection on how silly it feels to do comedy and pick it back up. And I don't know. We just wanted to kind of realist after the death, just depict it realistically and some of those things in the interactions that happen and then uh, I don't know sorry it was like oh, a year ago I wrote it I can't remember the specific uh, decisions but um, I mean did you did you have any doubt in your did you have any doubt like I don't know if we should attempt this with my with this show or or I mean I imagine that it's easy to have that doubt but um uh yeah sh sure i mean like i knew that if we didn't do it properly it was going to come off looking ridiculous in the attempt and it would undermine everything and so i just treated it kind of like as a real tribute to my grandmother the obituary uh that was in the episode was about her um and just i don't know the the difficulty of having to do something like that at the time was something I people have reached out and said that they it helped that episode and uh, has helped them in some circumstances write an obituary and other people just said that they've lost somebody close to them and it helped helped get through it and just appreciation of a life. I just really liked how. Um... And it almost felt like the function of the season was was shown. The function of the style of either entertainment or art, whatever you want to call it, as was shown in those two episodes because I think it really held space. It's almost as though you, not that nothing comedic happened in the following episode, but it it was you allowed. I think anyone who really gets the show and watches it when watching that next episode was at least me just very relieved to, to, to not sense that there was th this, this pacing need to find when the next, like, you know, instance of comedy was going to be, but it really actually let you just exist quietly inside of what everyone was experiencing, but not in a dramatic, you know, I, it's, Again, it's like hard to articulate, but I wanted to. I just wanted to mention that I really, really enjoyed the the patience of that. Thanks. I I think that what I think now I'm remembering a little bit. I think it was just um, about like uh, just that feeling of being in the house. I don't know. After everybody, after you know the funeral mass is over, after um, all the. The, the the everybody's given their condolences and you're just kind of left with that quiet and what you do with it and that just being fatigued and also having 
chores to do and continue and, uh, you know, trying to take those first steps uh, to restarting your life without somebody and just those quiet moments where you just are kind of existing and, and yeah, that just, you feel that big emptiness. I think that that's, at least in the obituary episode, that's what we were trying to capture the tone of. I don't think there's any music in that one. Right, James? Yeah, no, that was a week off for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Mortality is kind of a a tricky thing. James, on The World Only Ends When You Die, your your character suffers a sort of near-death experience. Have have you ever uh, experienced anything like that yourself, and and did that inform the way you, you worked on this album? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, there was, there, there, there's an instance that like I can, I can point to. I don't know if it, I mean, you know, I don't know if the, if it's like a direct inspiration, maybe I kind of call back to it. Cause when I think about the inspiration from said near death experience, I think of, um, the, the, the first vinyl I released as James Wallace in the naked light, which I recorded very quickly and released shortly after, um, a bike accident that I had. Um, and I also, also always feel like maybe there's a, um, it's some kind of catalyst I go back to, but it wasn't that dramatic. I think, um, to, as a story I got, I was like riding my bike in Nashville. Um, after this really, um, just like punishing tour in my van again with like four friends where we booked a really useless, but useless is a bad term, but we, we booked a long like tour up to Canada and over to, to New York and playing each other's songs, everything you could imagine goes wrong. And we fight a lot, but we also love each other and it's hot and we're in a van again. And then I get back and like a couple days later, I'm riding my bike to, um, I think it was, I think I was going to play tambourine with someone at the basement, which is a venue in Nashville. And, um, yeah, a woman pulled out in front of me as I was going down a hill and I hit the car. I ruptured my spleen, but I didn't really hurt anything else. And I mean that it, that is bad, and it sounds bad. Um, yeah, that's that sounds awful. It's it's it is bad. Uh, and there was also a really comedic moment with the doctor where he was. It's kind of like a. I don't know. I mean, my memory is foggy from that time period. I didn't actually have a concussion, but still my memory, like the, the adrenaline memory is foggy. He kind of reminded me of like a Garth Marenghi type doctor. Hmm. And he, um, uh, I, I got the CAT scan and I was in, I was lying in the, I guess this room, the hospital room. And I was waiting on the results and he came in and he just said, got your spleen and i <laughs> and i said what is what do you mean got your spleen and he goes it got your spleen the car and yeah the car God. i guess we, but he didn't say the car he just said it and um and so then i asked him what does that mean in the sense that i wanted to know what my future was going to look like right and um and and he licked his index finger and <laughs> drew the line on my chest where they were going to cut me open. Oh no. 
and and was like, well, we're gonna make an incision right here, and uh, and I and I was like, that's to me, that's useless information. I really only want to know what's gonna happen afterwards. And he made it seem as though everything was gonna be fine and my future would be identical, except for this simple incision that they'd have to make. And I didn't, I didn't believe him. And then he left the room and came back and said, oh wow, we uh, don't have an OR team here. So we're going to send you to another hospital ASAP. And I said, okay. And as, as I was getting wheeled away, he, it, you know, I've, I've told the story many times and it, it sounds more cartoonish each time. So I'm always at odds with myself to know if it's true. But when he, when I was getting wheeled away, he yelled out, oh yeah, when you, when you get, where was going to Vanderbilt, when you get to Vanderbilt, they might not cut out your spleen. <laughs> and I said, Wow. Okay. Uh, and turns out when I got to Vanderbilt, they didn't cut out my spleen. They, uh, they just watched me for three days and um, hey. things went back to normal and I was, I was okay. So yeah, I'm, I'm grateful. I, I don't know if I'd call that a near death experience, but it was a, um, it was like a, a wake up call. The name of that tour, by the way, we named that tour the summer of trouble mm. and, um, yeah, all kinds of things. When one of my Prophetic. friends learned that his his sweetheart was actually a sociopath and had been stealing money from him, um, and we also we also you know I mean we booked so many we booked shows through Yelp if if that is even a, <laughs> like a fathomable thing. Um, and, and anyways, we we got through it, and I never categorically name any project with a with a uh, prophetically dark name that's like a rule i don't do that anymore right yeah <laughs> if that sounds like what you just described sounds like that's it that's an entire album like an entire another concept album you know what i mean like the the intensity of the story um but when you're when you have a doctor licking his finger which i don't i don't like that part um but uh hated that part <laughs> yeah that was not cool but but when you when you are faced with the the it doesn't matter you know even how routine the surgery is anytime you're you're faced with this this situation where your life is definitely not you know in your hands you know um you know that 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 definitely inspires a, a, a line of thinking and i wonder if this record does this record feel sort of tied to even just the you know, because we can't understand what death is entirely. We know we know what happens, and we know that it will happen. You know, but but this this album sort of spins a yarn out from that that knowledge. Um, you know, what inspired you to kind of go down that that path? I yeah, it's. I mean, it that I guess it kind of feels similar to the the thing that joe said earlier where once you get once you're obsessing over an idea or a song or you know lyrics or melody etc you you hold a whole lot in your mind and it's intense and it's like you know i mean i'm not trying to sound like a like tortured or anything but it can be kind of it can be a little overwhelming even if you're just considering the logistics required to like get them out with a team of people in a studio in a, in a set amount of time. Um, but it's just that once it's out, it feels 
totally different <laughs> than it did when it was on the front end. Right. Um, and and you can really you can almost make up a new story for what it is that you made, and then that can be the story that I would say is the inspiration. And I also know that that's not totally genuine. So it I get I have reservation on like think like you know the song Muddy Water. I was driving home. I no, I was riding my bike along the Greenway in Nashville late at night, kind of, you know, not not totally unsketchy um, circumstance. But I was, I I had gotten free tickets to see the Rolling Stones play at uh, Titan Stadium, so I was like on a, I was on a, I was vibing hard, leaving that concert on my bike, thinking of like all the synchronicities of like how cool is it that I can ride my bike home from a stadium. To, from seeing the Rolling Stones, I'm a little tipsy and I don't even have a light on this bike, but the moon is up and I can see and I'm along the river and the river is really far out to me right now. And I got home and immediately just like, just felt like I had permission to sing about such mundane things as muddy water and a river. Um, and that, that's like kind of the only reason that song exists. And you kind of unpack it from there. Right. That's a lot of songs are similar to that, where the where the meaning becomes sort of extrapolated or or expands, you know, after after it's actually you know created. That I mean, that I guess that's what that's what all art is. But it's interesting that even for you as the creator, you know, it, it it's like your work has something to teach you um, after you're sort of done with it. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it it's a lot. That's that's a big weird part of why I continue to pursue this very bizarre enterprise. <laughs> it's like the weird the weird after effects that happen when you're done and you and you can see what you've created and it like shows you something. I mean, you know, it's it's all interesting. Well, Guys, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to talk. B- before I before I let you go, I want I did want to ask what you guys have been uh, listening to lately because I, I think that could be interesting for people to hear. What what have you what have you been what have you been listening to lately, Joe? The Skyway Man album. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, also the uh, Bill Callahan's. Uh, new stuff that's been coming out and also uh i kind of a few weeks ago i went through a, a re-listen of uh jay retard oh and yeah and mm. i really enjoyed that what a drag that he's he's gone he should have made a thousand more albums mm-hmm. definitely i i was just gonna say how how nice uh the, the final track on uh the new skyway album is especially i I was thinking as we were talking later about, I don't know, kind of maintaining uh, a little bit of hopefulness. Uh, it's a nice, it's a very nice track for that. And I think it's, it's a, it's not like, uh, I don't know. How would you just, I'll, I should let James describe it, but it's just a kind of a nice thing to hear these times. And hopefully, even though it's kind of a slow song, um, I mean, the song itself is is um, brother and sister. W B great. Like that's the that is the song, and in 
as far as I'm concerned, the only song that exists. And what I did was just hang a like, like someone who learned it off of an AM radio broadcast in the future take on it, sort of. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow. And um, so, I mean, when it when it comes to that song, any I would say anyone who encounters it and enjoys it just return to the original source and listen to that one and and just let it just like let that take you and um but yeah i mean i i i know i i like that i you know it's it's it feels even that recording feels really hopeful to me in a way that i needed and i really wanted to make sure it did um so i'm i'm real grateful you said that yeah and i love the idea yeah. of of somebody sort of a, f- a future person sort of like carrying that, that song forward after having, you know, maybe heard it, you know? Yeah. That, that <laughs> it is, it is really beautiful. How about you, James? What have you, what have you been spinning lately uh, to keep from going crazy? Um, well, that new, um, uh, uh, floating action, Michael now song that they just put out is it's pretty special. Yeah. And um uh I mean it's it all feels like I you know last night I I I I guess it was like a post debate trying to like cook dinner and get in just like put myself in a really good mood like the the day after just what a day that ever I feel like everyone slept kind of weird um yeah most people um and then and I yeah, I, I put on my friend Big Kitty's record. He has this album that's it's like a radio show called uh, A Legend in the Field of Field of Entertainment. And it's <laughs> just it just it's like just transports you to another place. And that's it's all I needed while I was while I was cooking. And um beyond that, um I have not been listening to a lot of music. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I still love it. It's a good, it's a good type of art. I would say that that's probably pretty crucial to what you do. So I'm glad that you're okay with the concept of music. You might be in trouble <laughs> if you if you weren't. I'm still I'm still a huge fan. <laughs> well, the new record is is really fantastic and and the work that you guys did on the second season of joe para talks with you is is also really fantastic and uh i appreciate you guys taking the time to talk about this stuff with me thanks jason of course thanks so much yeah this was a blast joe para and skyway man Go get The World Only Ends When You Die, Friday, October 23rd, wherever you get music. And do yourself a favor and check out all the episodes of Joe Para Talks With You. There are two great seasons, and you can catch them all via Adult Swim. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode, but if you can't wait until then, head over to Aquarium Drunkard and check out our podcast archives, featuring conversations with Tim Heidecker, Jason Manzukis, Jeff Parker, Killian Welch, Michael Rother of Noy, and many more. Speak soon. Take it easy until then. Name the fallen, listed reasons.